You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Columbus Business First, newest episode of the Women of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Emily Bench, and this podcast features a sit-down chat between me and some of the sharpest and most successful women executives in Columbus. In it, we talk about the professional risks they've taken and the ups and downs of getting to where they are today. With us today is Christy Campbell, the COO of Rev1 Ventures. Christy, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Emily. Great. Christy is the Chief Operating Officer of Rev1 Ventures, the investor startup studio providing strategic services and capital to help startups scale and innovate. Christy also leads Rev1's inclusive entrepreneurship efforts, focused on reducing bias and improving access to resources and capital for women and minority inventors and entrepreneurs. Prior to joining Rev1, Christy spent her career working within multiple high-growth venture-backed startups, helping to build their brands, organize effective teams, grow revenue, and scale. She held leadership positions at Manta Media, where she helped grow the company into one of the largest, most traffic websites in the U.S., and Sama Technologies, a global leader in big data and analytics. Christy is a frequent speaker on startup marketing and inclusion best practices and has been featured in Entrepreneur, Huffington Post, Venture Beat, Yahoo, and other top entrepreneur media outlets. Christy, I have so many questions for you, but I would love to just start if you could give me a rundown of your resume and what has brought you to where you are now. Sure. No, thank you. So I spent uh, probably the prior 20 years before joining Rev1 working in startups. Kind of caught that bug early in the mid-90s when I started working for a uh, telecom software company that was actually based out of Dublin, Ireland, but had their U.S. headquarters here in Dublin, Ohio, which is where I live now. And once I had experienced what it was like to work for a startup, it was really difficult for me to go back. Mm -hmm. So having uh, visibility into multiple areas of the business, watching a business grow from the ground up, and really seeing the customer acquisition process and how that funnels all the way through implementation just really stuck with me. So I, I spent many years working in mostly software and IT uh, startup organizations, mostly venture-backed. After Manta, mm-hmm. I was kind of looking for my next opportunity and ran into what is now Rev1 Ventures and the ability to work with multiple startups at one time. Yeah. Could you kind of explain to our listeners what Rev1 does Sure. So as you mentioned, we're an investor startup studio, which may be a newer term to some, but it's really just 
combining very strategic services and pairing that with capital to help startups from the earliest stages. So maybe unlike a traditional accelerator where every startup that, that enters the program gets the same suite of services mm -hmm. over the same period of time with the same amount of funding at the end of it, our program is very focused specifically on the needs of the company. So meeting them where they are at the stage they're at. And if they have more of a need for talent development and finding key co-founders or talent for the organization, we would put our resources there. If it's more about how do I go out and land my next customer and create a repeatable sales cycle, we would spend more time there. Okay. So we have a suite of services and then we have a continuum of capital from the seed stage to the early stage, uh, concept stage, I'm sorry, to the early stage, uh, about 90 million of capital under management, and we pair those to help startups grow and scale. Cool. So when you were first starting out, what about the startup world really, you know, said you you caught that bug, what kind yeah, of Yeah, it's add? pretty simple. For me, it was having visibility into all areas of the organization, because I think when you're younger, it's less common that you can see what's going on in sales and marketing and customer acquisition and what is the growth plan for the organization, mm -hmm. right? You're used to just sort of, prior to that, I was used to being in an organization where I had a box around my role and this is what I did every day. And when I first started working for a startup, it was sort of like, wow. You know, I liked seeing the full circle of that and that's yeah. definitely been a consistent thread throughout my career, sort of tying together the different parts of the organization and seeing what's working and what's not. So yeah. it was hard to go, it, it was, there was no going back after that. Yeah. So. How have you feel, how do you feel like the startup world in Columbus has changed since you started? Um, since back then, since yeah. the mid nineties, it's, it's day and night. I mean, I've, um, I've worked again, all in mostly in software and, and technology organizations and there just weren't, you know, we had quite a few peers that were doing things in the space, but there just wasn't the density that we have now, yeah. right? I mean, so, you know, just using the, the viewpoint in from Rev1, we've invested in 100 startups in the last five years, right? Wow. And so to hear, you know, from the, the community's perspective, then to hear and see the growth of these companies, that they're getting funding, they're getting traction, they're getting support from customers, you know, instead of being one among three or four that you knew of in your industry, now being one among many is really bringing awareness to our community as a startup hub in the Midwest and beyond. Yeah. And for you, could you tell me a little bit more about your inclusive entrepreneurship efforts? That sounds really cool. Sure. I know it sounds a little fancy, but the, <laughs> the premise of it is that we're building uh, inclusion and diversity into the fabric of entrepreneurship, not just in the work that Rev1 does as this entrepreneurial hub, but across the community. So connecting the assets we have in the region, the programs, the partnerships, the nonprofits who are doing good work to foster entrepreneurship as a career path. And so, you know, maybe it's easier if I call out the challenge that mm -hmm. we all sort of know exists, which is, you know, only about three to nine percent of venture capital goes to women founded companies nationally, uh, depending on which study you look at. And that's just not where we want to be, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that keeps me up at night, having been in mostly venture-backed companies. And so for me and for Rev1, it's about how do we break down barriers? How do we reduce friction? How do we connect into groups and organizations that have uh, access to women innovators? Yeah. And so, you know, we have created a lot of partnerships. We've grown a lot of partnerships to do that. Uh, and there's still a lot of work to do. One, one bright spot in that that makes me really excited is that Last year, if you look at the 36 companies we invested in at Rev1 Ventures, 
half of them had a woman or a minority wow. founder or inventor at the helm, and 38% of the capital went to the same company. So, again, you know, we're as a community, I think we have diversity and it's coming out in our deal flow and our work, but we have so much more to do. And so we have some very specific partnerships that are, that our hope is that well that can continue to provide access to more women yeah sprint come to the table have you had any experience being on the other side where you know as a woman in the startup world what has that been like for you or challenges you've faced that's a really good question you know I've, I've never when I look back because I get asked that a lot when I look back I don't recall ever feeling a time where I was purposely excluded because I was a woman now when you're working in software and IT companies there does tend to be, you know, a more, for example, there are more men as developers or as, um, right. you know, doing IT work. And so that's probably, again, that's, that's where we are, not where we want to be, but mm -hmm. it just felt like that's just where we are. So I didn't take that as I wasn't able to get into that. I just took it as that's, you know, the type of company I'm in. The thing that, that I took a while for me to realize, and I impart this, uh, learning upon others coming up in the space is that to help build a company, you don't have to be the idea person, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to be the one that came up with the idea or went out and got it funded even it's, or figured out how to create the business plan around it. You can be the person that helps to grow a certain area of the organization, right? Um, for cool. me, I always started out in the first handful of companies that I worked in. I always started out in marketing because that was where my background was. Mm -hmm. It was advertising management, PR, communications. But I quickly grew into other areas, mainly because I was just curious, right? And in a startup, if you show that curiosity and that interest and you want to understand how to connect the dots and how to do things better, you have the place to do so because mm -hmm. no one else is going to do it, right? There's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, the roles are a lot more flexible at the earliest stages. So I guess to boil that down to, you know, any advice I would give, it's just, you know, follow your areas of interest and don't be afraid to sort of go outside your box. And you yeah. can do that in a startup because... They're looking for people that have that curiosity and that interest in the business. Yeah. When do you feel like you started to be able to see yourself in a C-suite kind of level like you're at now? You know, it's this is going to sound trite. I, I don't see myself at a C-suite <laughs> level now. I mean, I clearly have that title. I, I see myself as you know, part of the fabric of the organization, you know, on a daily basis, I'm in meetings talking about strategy, but in the next meeting, I'm also doing very hands-on work in the organization. So, you know, I would say from a title perspective, it's probably been in the last, you know, four or five years that the role has been much more focused on the strategic growth of the organization, especially around the team and alignment. But I, I kind of, as I mentioned, really kind of caught that bug of, sort of looking at how is the work we're doing as an organization kind of coming for full circle. And I noticed that, you know, in the first couple jobs out of college that I really wanted to know what the impact mm. was, not just in my area. Yeah. So that curiosity, kind of following it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. When So when you first started to really get involved in this space a little bit more, how or did you let your boss know what your career goals were and what your ambitions were? You know, I wish I could say that I had a plan or that I ever had those conversations. I still have a hard time with that conversation when, when our CEO asks me, you know, where do you want to be in five years or how can I help you get there? For me, it's just been following the things that make me feel good about doing my job. I never, I don't remember ever having 
a very specific plan or a very specific conversation about where I wanted to be. Yeah. I would say I'm more thoughtful about that now that mm-hmm. I have children because I want to make sure that what I'm doing now and what I'm doing in five years will allow me to spend the time with them where they are. Yeah. But gosh, I wish I was more planful. <laughs> I've pretty much just followed. I'm excited about doing this work and it makes me want to come in every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, if it's gotten to the point where it doesn't feel like that, then I, then I know it's time hmm. to sort of, what's next? Yeah. So. And I think that's cool. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of times as women, we put pressure on ourselves to have this like perfect plan in place and we have to do everything step by step. And yeah. I mean, you're a perfect example of like, sometimes there isn't a perfect step by step plan. There's not. You just have to do really, I think you have to do really good work and it's all about building trust with yeah. your team, you yeah. know, that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And if you're not liking it, you probably won't want to do that and you'll move mm-hmm. on. But yeah, I, I do feel like I feel good about this, these next generations and envious a little bit because I feel like women have, begot, have gotten much more clear about what they mm-hmm. want and more planful. Yeah. And I think they've even gotten more planful about it saying what they don't want to do, which I think I never felt like I could hmm. say that. Yeah. To, what do you feel like made you not be able to say that? I think it was just a little bit different time. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm that old, but I'm a lot older than a lot of the people that I work with now. And it was just not, you did, it wasn't as open um, as a communications, you know, you, did, you didn't talk about it as much as younger team members do now, which yeah. I, again, I really appreciate being able to have those conversations with my team. Yeah. You have a lot of people that are working underneath you and you give a lot of feedback to mm-hmm. the people that you work with. How do you give critical feedback? Yeah, that's interesting because we talk about that a lot on our executive team at Rev1. Um, I read a research study recently. I'm pretty sure it was from Harvard Business Review, but it was talking about how critical feedback is best delivered as do more like this versus don't do that, Hmm. right? So I think, you know, that's definitely something I tactic I try to use. It's it's calling out where things went well. And if things didn't go well, it's using it as a learning opportunity um, because you have to create a culture where people feel like they can, that they have room to fail yeah. and they'll, they'll have a safety net in your organization to be able to learn and grow from that. What for you has been the hardest critical feedback you've gotten from someone in your career? Oh gosh. I had a leadership coach actually while I was at Manta. We had, we had um, a coach that you know, worked with some of the executive team and helped us to develop our skills. And I think it, for me, it was the realization that oftentimes the things that make you really good in certain areas, the flip side of them can also be too much. Mm. Sometimes I can be very direct and kind of cut to the chase. Mm. But when you're, when you're lifted up and your, your work is fostered by a full team, you can't go into every meeting with, this is how we're going to do it. It has yeah. to be let's all come up with the best ideas and then determine a path forward. So I would say that's the thing that I've had to adjust the most is, you know, the wisdom of the team and not just the wisdom of one. Yeah. So Have you ever experienced pushback from that as a woman of like, I think a lot of times women who are a little more cutthroat and a little more let's get this done are seen in more of a negative light than a man who does the same thing. I, I definitely hear that. And if I were to look back now on situations just throughout my career, I can see that now. But I, again, I never remember feeling it at the time. Yeah, I've actually had mentors, people I've worked with throughout my career who have 
kind of called out points where, you know, maybe you're literally not sitting at the big table, you know, you're off to the side, yeah. or maybe you're the person who's, you know, I'm used to taking notes and making sure that I know what the next steps are. And maybe that's seen as administrative. I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm just using examples, but where I've had mentors call out, you know, don't assume a role, right? Yeah. Rather go into a meeting where you can talk openly about what are the roles in this meeting and what are our next steps versus you just assuming yeah. what you're going to do. Again, I don't remember feeling a certain way about being sort of having pushback on that personality, but I, I guess if I do think about it, I do remember situations like that. Yeah. yeah. What would be your advice to women who maybe aren't as straightforward as you are? How do they get ahead in their career if they're not? Well, I think one thing that I feel like is very empowering now that I didn't have support for earlier in my career is that different types of personalities are much more valued now, mm -hmm. right? If you think about just, you know, books about the power of introverts and things like that, um, and now having two children, one who is very much an extrovert and one very much an introvert, I'm realizing that there's so much value in all all of those viewpoints. So. I think, one, women should just not feel like they have to be a certain way to get to a hmm. certain point, right? They should embrace how they think about the world. If, it, if they are more thoughtful in taking time to think about what is the next best step versus feeling like they have to fill the air and get their voice, yes. to, you know, get their point across, then they should understand that that's how they approach the world and figure out how to make sure they are heard. And that could be, for example, if you're in a meeting and the meeting's coming to a close and you now have decided, okay, I've kind of wrapped up what I think is the thing I want to yeah. say. Just because it looks like everybody's getting ready to break, you could say, hold on just a minute, I really have something I want to share. And just, you know, making sure that you are heard, even yeah. if it's not in the exact moment, yeah. right? So, I, so embrace the, the style you have and just push to be heard. Yeah. Or after the meeting, it doesn't have to happen in the meeting. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's great. Everybody's different. Yeah. So you have kids? I do. How old are they? Uh, a 13-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl. Okay. Yeah. So when you had first had kids, maybe it was your first kid or, or maybe yeah. when the second one came along, what was that like for you figuring out how to be a dual role with mom and, and working and all? I would say it was super clunky, not <laughs> done well. You know, I was so wrapped up in my career that I was you know, really worried about how quickly can I get back to work and... Mm. You know, I was at a startup for both of my children and, um, you know, I don't even think we had any kind of formal maternity leave. So I would say I didn't do it well. <laughs> <laughs> I think organizations, even earlier stage organizations, are more thoughtful about that now. Mm. Um, so, you know, my, my kind of guidance to those who are going through it now is, you know, look at what you need and find places that will provide that. Yeah. Because I, I just sort of... I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to make sure nothing dropped and there's just no way to do that. Yeah. Right. You just have to get comfortable with nothing's ever going to be perfect in any aspect of your life at one time. And you yeah. do the best that you can Yeah. because it's just, you'll just drive yourself nuts <laughs> if you're trying to be perfect. Yeah. Why you know? do you feel like women in the workplace feel that constant pressure of perfection? in and outside of the workplace, because it's not just work where we feel that a lot of the time. You know, right? I wish I knew. There's so much research out there about that. I really wish I knew. My husband and I talk about it sometimes. He's a project manager at Honda, and um, things that I think about, he doesn't think about at all, right? So it's. I think it's just maybe wanting to please people, mm. maybe wanting to make sure that you have all the bases covered and are very thoughtful about what's coming next. Mm -hmm. um, 
asking for help is probably one of the hardest things I ever <laughs> had to get good at doing. And yeah. you have to do that a lot in your work and in your home life when you're doing both. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone who, I? one of the women who I had on the show previously had some great uh, advice for this question. If there's a woman who's in a role that she doesn't necessarily feel super happy in, mm -hmm. how would you, you know, what kind of advice would you give to her to push outside of her comfort zone and just go after it? it something, mm -hmm. especially like maybe they want to be an entrepreneur and start their own business. That's a very scary thing to go after, yes. especially if maybe you're in the corporate world where, you know, you have right. a good salary and, and health benefits and all these things that can get in the way of going after right. what you want. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I have had people ask me that before. And the way I approach it, especially now after working in so many different um, fast-moving organizations, is that first, just recognize it. Take the time to stop and recognize I'm not happy here. Yeah. Because we tend to just get lost in the momentum mm -hmm. of uh, what we're doing and where we're going, and who, you know, especially with a family in the mix. So... You know, if, if you're not feeling good about your current opportunity, being okay with giving it space and time to look at, well, what am I not happy about? Is it something I could solve for in this organization? And go have that conversation hmm. with your team or your, or your leader because oftentimes people will leave because they feel like they're in a box and they may not know that they weren't, hmm. right? That they had the opportunity. And if it's an opportunity outside that organization, especially if it's entrepreneurship, I mean, just know that there is a lot of support out there, especially for women, because, you know, as women start businesses at a much higher rate than men, they're having a harder time growing them. Yeah. And so there are more resources than ever to help do that. And you don't have to get to the point where you have a fully baked business plan to mm. start getting your ideas in front of others. So, you know, take time to recognize that you have a growing sense of something, what's next, and put as much energy behind that as you would any other area of your life, like your family or right. your current career. Yeah. As, you know, when you're looking back on your own career, has there been any advice that's stuck out to you that's kind of, I like to call like the worst advice you've ever heard? While I cannot think about the worst advice someone's given me, I can say that it's important to not feel like you are being pushed into a certain pathway, whether that be your parents or your family or, or what, what someone else wishes for you, yeah. because that's never going to result in you being happy. I think it's being open to what are the opportunities and seeing what, what you're passionate about. Yeah, that's awesome. In the startup world, from who I've spoken with before, it's based heavily on who you're connected with because there's just so many people and so many ideas floating around. How have you built your network of connections in your career? So a lot of it has happened very organically. I would say the earliest part of my career, it was more around the industries in which I worked, software, mm -hmm. IT, um, very data analytics, decision support kinds of companies, so I had a pretty strong network there. But beyond that, it has been pretty intentional, especially in my work with Rev1, because we have very specific focus areas, and so I tend to kind of look at what are who are people that I want to know who are doing good things or are running good organizations yeah. that could benefit the startups we work with. And so I'm a little bit more intentional now than I used to be. Mm -hmm. it's, it's usually not focused on where I want to go, it's focused on how can I do a better job. Mm. And with that then naturally comes opportunities that you end up sitting across, you know, a woman at lunch where you're like, please be my mentor, right? Yeah, you just, right. You, you end up having these personal conversations. And I, I had that experience recently. So just looking for mentorship in unlikely yeah. places also. When women ask you to be their mentor, how do you navigate that? Because you can't say yes to everyone, right? 
You can't. Usually I just start with, let's just have coffee, mm -hmm. right? And I actually have structured time in my weeks to do that. <laughs> you know, a couple mornings a week, we're all going a little early and, and do that. Because what you realize in a conversation is you can learn a lot just from one conversation, but you can also help to make connections that may be a better fit yeah. for somebody. So yeah, you definitely can't, you know, commit to everything. But mentorship is so personal yeah. and it has to go just beyond the experience. It has to be a personality thing. Yeah. As well. So that's, um, you know, that's kind of something you can figure out in a first coffee meeting. When you're starting, you see so many people who are starting their own businesses and, and launching companies in Columbus. What mm -hmm. is that first step? What are you looking for when someone comes to the table and is like, hey, I want to start this? Yes. What, what is that big thing for you where you're like, you have to get this? Yeah. Um, no, that's a really, really good question. And we get asked that a lot. Also, I'll speak here, you know, on behalf of Rev One. Yeah. It's all about how passionate you are about solving the problem for your customers. You want, you're basically falling in love with the problem because you want to solve a need that your customers have and, and identifying that it's a real need that they have and yeah. that the alternatives that are out there now are not going to cut it. Mm. And so we actually spend quite a bit of time with most of the entrepreneurs that we, we um, first meet talking about that. And that's actually the first step is that we invite entrepreneurs who you know look like they're fit for our services to uh, come to our customer learning lab mm -hmm. which is a three-day boot camp over the course of two weeks and we spend the entire time focused on who is your first customer how do you get real data that yeah. proves that they want what you've either built or are planning to build mm -hmm. so it's all about knowing and understanding your customer and that you can then build a product that yeah. serves their needs and kind of going off that, what do you say to someone who maybe has an idea that's not fully baked yet, or maybe it's an idea that you don't really see a need for? How mm -hmm. do you, like, what advice would you have someone to go back to the drawing table and come up yeah. with another idea and come back It's going to gonna be the same thing that I just said, but a little bit different answer. It's, yeah. you know, it's not that it's a half-baked idea. It's that you don't have enough inputs from your, audience, from your target audience, yeah. right? And that's a very common thing. So about... 600 entrepreneurs, potential entrepreneurs reach out to us every year hmm. and you know, we only only about 35 of them enter our investor startup studio. So there's a big yeah. uh, big difference between those numbers and so a lot of people first conversations are just that. They're just not there's just not enough information yet. Yeah. So we, you know, the first thing is we encourage you to go talk to potential customers. Make sure that one you're validating that they have the problem that you're solving for and if you have validated that, then you want to validate that what you plan to build, the specific features of your product would actually solve the problem. Yeah. So it's, it seems easier than it is mm. though, oh, to yeah. do that work. So our last segment, we just go through a couple quick questions. So whenever I ask you these, just tell me the first thing that comes to your head. Oh boy. <laughs> Association. <laughs> What's the biggest myth about being a female executive? Probably that it's any different than being a male executive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're still thinking about a lot of different things and sometimes competing things at once. You're thinking about how do you resource those areas of the organization. You're always thinking about what's next. Uh, how can you continue to do better work than you did the day before? For me, I don't think it's different than what yeah. male executives think about. And then how do you 
get out in time to get to your kid's tennis match. <laughs> but I think most men are emo- at this point are thinking about those things as well. Yeah. Yeah. How so, do you do that? Like when you have a kid's tennis match, what yeah, things do well, you Well, that'll happen place? tonight. My daughter will be at soccer <laughs> at the same exact time that my son's at tennis. Right. And you'll just do one, you know, one versus the other or, or you'll divide and conquer. Yeah. I mean, kids are so resilient. They know that you can't be at everything. Yeah. You know, especially when there's two things happening at once. I'm always in awe of those parents who have five, six, seven kids and they just get help, right? I was, yeah. I was talking about earlier, you just you just get help and you just be okay with what you can only do what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And your kids will start to learn that as well. Was that hard for you at work figuring out like, okay, I have a meet, I'm going to go, like I'm going to leave? Yes, much earlier in my career, it was something where, you know, you felt like you needed to ask before mm-hmm. you left or you needed to tell them, your boss or who you reported to ahead of time and you know, later in your career, I think you, you just get a, you get a little bit more comfort level with your, the trust that you've built up in the organization. Yeah. And so, you know, in our organization specifically, we just foster a culture of you do what you need to do because you're very hardworking and you, you'll get it done regardless of when you specifically do that. Yeah. So and I think that makes like people so much happier in their job when they don't yes. feel like there's this, you know, I have to be here nine to five and right. every single day. Flexibility is important. Almost everybody that I talk to thinks that's an important part of their job. Yeah, definitely. Or important uh, asset to have, or benefit yeah. to have. For sure. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be the person who drew ads, like in, adver- in advertising. Okay. So my dad was actually um, a creative director for an ad agency. And so I spent time. I spent used to spend time just sitting, kind of at his easel, drawing out ads. And that was before computers, so that's really going to date me. Um, which is why I went into advertising. Um, and my first job out of college was working for an ad agency. So you have kind of that creative background a little bit. I do. I would say I'm kind of you know when you take those tests, I'm equal left brain, right brain. So I have that. Um, I don't know. It's a good, good or bad, but I have kind of that balanced brain approach. Yeah, that's things. great. Yeah. I'm totally not left brain. Like. You put numbers in front of me, and it's like a different language. Yes, yes. Numbers, yeah, they're not not the top of my list either, but (laughs) you do do realize over time that you have to really uh, understand the data about the work that you do. Oh, sure. So So this kind of goes with the first question I had asked you, but how do you feel about being classified as a female COO instead of just COO? You know, do you get classified as that a lot? Well, for things like this, and Mm -hmm. I actually think that it's very good. I mean, some people would say that that's calling it out and it's not equal, but I feel like until it actually is equal, Mm -hmm. that I think it's important to to have stories and visibility and more awareness for women who are building businesses, helping to build businesses and doing good work. So it doesn't bother me, but I can understand why some people are sort of like, Mm -hmm. why does it need to be? called out but until it is equal I think it should be a focus yeah that's my personal opinion that's that's just Christy talking here (laughs) I think that's great what do you wish you knew when you were first starting your career that you know now and I learned this pretty early but I think just that if you just do really good work regardless of what it is in the beginning Mm -hmm. that good things will come I do feel like some of the younger folks that I run into, um, even through interview processes mm-hmm. and things like that, are so focused on making sure that I pick the exact right next thing to spend this amount of time on and mm-hmm. that they could be missing the opportunity to try some things out. Yeah. And in that process, and especially in a startup, you get your hands on a lot of other things. Yeah. So if you do good work, 
opportunities will be boundless opportunities. Doors will continue to open, and that I learned that pretty early in my career. Who is your biggest role model or mentor? I would say my parents, mm-hmm. you know, because they were always juggling so much. My mother was a, you know, working mom. My my dad was an advertising executive. So I think seeing that they could both have important jobs and yeah. then come home and be there for us. And What was that like growing up with a mom who was working full-time? So my mom worked mostly part-time when we were really younger and then she added more time. You know, you just, I think you're just a little bit more self-sustaining. You're able to do a little bit more on your own. That's trust. You have mm-hmm. to build trust. Your, your kids need to know what they can and can't do. And so I, I think it's important, and clearly our kids are in that situation yeah. where, you know, we're away from them during the day more than we're with them. Mm-hmm. So you need to make the time that you are with them matter. Yeah. So but I think it's, po- I see it as positive. Great. Yeah, yeah. totally. Awesome. Well, Christy, thank you so much for yes, coming. Really thanks again for having me. I'm loving your offices. I have, hadn't been. <laughs> thank you. Yes.